0: We are all imperiled by the climate emergency, but some of us are clearly more threatened than others. Human and non-human animals and entire ecosystems are under duress. It's hard to know exactly where to place the emphasis in sketching the contours of an ongoing struggle for revolutions in energy use that could prevent the devastation of runaway global heating. But acknowledging that the impact is extremely uneven might be the most imperative. Because there's an urgent need for us to reject the reigning energy regime of fossil fuel extraction, a group of authors and academics recently got together to imagine pathways out of our current impasse. The outcome of that meeting was this six-episode podcast series. In this episode of Volatile Trajectories, you'll hear from Emily Eaton, Evelyn Jago, myself, Scott Stoneman, Mark Simpson, and Penelope Plaza about our relationships to the places we know and care about. And about our discrete approaches to breaking the spell of fossil capitalism, petroculture, oil, the dominant energy regime of our time. To give you a sense of who you'll be listening to, Mark Simpson hosts this discussion. Mark is a settler scholar and professor in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta, Treaty 6 Metis Territory. His work has appeared in South Atlantic Quarterly, Radical Philosophy, Postmodern Culture, and English Studies in Canada, among other venues. Emily Eaton is a professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at the University of Virginia in Treaty 4. She's a white settler whose research and teaching looks at the climate and inequality crises at local and national scales. Emily's the author of two books, Fault Lines, Life and Landscape in Saskatchewan's Oil Economy, and Growing Resistance, Canadian Farmers and the Politics of GM Wheat. Evelyn Jago is a professor at University of Toronto where she teaches cinema, literature, creative writing, and environment in the Spanish department and in comparative literature. She's the author of Take Her, She's Yours. Penelope Plaza is a Venezuelan architect and researcher Through her profession in the arts and urban activism, Penelope developed an interest in the intersections between politics, culture, architecture, and urban space. Our conversation focuses on not just a love of the land, but stubborn attachments to particular uses of the land, ways of cultivating, caring for, and working the land that have complex histories and serious consequences. We talk about the language of maintenance, both in terms of the maintaining of infrastructure and in the context of a larger push for a culture of care that sees us taking a back seat to the land's understanding of itself. What are your attachments to the land you live on? I currently live in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, Chippooktook, Mi'kma'ki, uh, but um, I've spent most of my time on earth in Hamilton, Ontario, um, a steel city. And like I often think about like how different the two cities are um, and how often, like, despite spending most of my life in Hamilton, how often I've, like, moved in and out of Hamilton. So it feels like it's in my DNA, but I'm like less attached to it than I am to Halifax. Um, in part, I think just because Halifax is defined by water, um, and like, I think a lot about uh, that when I when I'm there, and it's not a thing that I ever thought about when I was in Hamilton. Hamilton is a dusty dusty city um it has water but it's to be avoided um <laughs> again in halifax part of the thing is like we just got hit um by a hurricane right um and it was interesting like hurricanes are generally expected to spin out away from the coast but it hit us with what meteorologists call a left hook um and it did a lot of damage and i think you know that that feeling of being sort of like you know realizing that you're vulnerable and how much more vulnerable you will be next time is interesting to me as a pre- predominantly like landlocked city dweller um, living in dusty old hamilton um, but i still have a, a deep attachment to that city at the same time so it's it's kind of strange
1: uh so i live in regina saskatchewan it's um treaty four territory And I grew up in Saskatoon, which is only 260 kilometers away from there, but um, I did do my graduate work in Ontario, and so I was away um, from the province for some very pivotal years that were part of an oil boom um, in the province. And so when I returned, Saskatchewan is Canada's second largest oil producing province, but yet our industry was never Our economy was much more diverse than, for example, um, Alberta's next door. But over this period of time, when I had been away at graduate school, um, oil became much more central to um, not just our economy, but also, I think, um, culturally to um, many of the rural areas in Saskatchewan and to Saskatchewan's understanding of itself, um, sort of within the broader political economy of Canada. And so I became really interested in studying the oil industry in Saskatchewan when I returned because I'd seen a lot of these shifts. Um, And in the process, um, another thing I discovered in moving to southern Saskatchewan where there is more native prairie, which is one of the most endangered ecosystems in the world, um, was sort of more attachment, I guess, and more understanding of what um, prairie ecosystems are and were. How the oil industry is affecting those ecosystems and how those prairies are really essential to some of the inherent and treaty rights that um, canada recognized in the treaties so inherent rights that canada reaffirmed in the treaties Um, and so i've been really interested in sort of understanding the erasure of um, native prairie in in saskatchewan alongside um, our treaty commitments um, and inherent rights of indigenous people, and in relation as well to the oil industry.
2: Mm. Penelope?
3: Well, in my case, I have to well to start by saying that I'm originally from Venezuela, and I'm Caracas, and I'm now living in, uh, in England, uh, closer to London. So I should say I've been here for 10 years already. I am mean, slowly growing into my attachment with the land, um, because of sort of the differences in sort of the weather, the temperatures. So I, I cannot talk about my attachment to the land without talking about how it affects uh, my body. And it sounds silly, but still getting used to this idea of having seasons after living for 37 years in, um, in Venezuela. But the, the, the thing that strikes me as the biggest uh, difference is how much more uh, domesticated the land is here in England um sort of more regulated manicure in some ways, uh, more cared for, but also managed um, enclosed. Um, so it, it just gives me a sort of a, a space also also a children here where I found some um, sort of peace and 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 ways to uh, reflect on my relationship to the land where I come from. Um, because building on what Emily said about the about the oil industry, as you're seeing, looking back how a lot of the protections that we have for land have been uh, unraveled because of uh, mining and how sort of the Amazon with the uh, Orinoco oil mining arc, has been completely eroded and seeing in Caracas how trees have been fell indiscriminately. Whereas here I see all kinds of sort of, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist back in Venezuela, but it's a lot more formalized um, how you protect uh, land, how you sort of organize to value, you know, the, the fact that it's in the neighborhood, a website where you can uh, pinpoint which tree you want to have uh, protected, um, just signal you know, to a different way that is in contrast to what we we'll talk about sort of later as a sense of sort of wastefulness and, and sort of wealth that you also see um, in London but also how different it is in terms of access to greenery and land, depending on where you live and what your income uh, is. That is also quite um, striking, um, so to speak. Um, So I guess for me, it's still quite a problematic, um, I wouldn't say problematic, but it's quite challenging because, so, so my relationship to this land is framed by my immigrant status. Uh, so like no matter how attached I am actually feeling to and grateful to be welcomed by you know by by these um, you know seasons and autumn and getting to enjoy new fruits and new products, it always you have this on, my, on the back of your mind that could be taken away by an act of bureaucracy. Um, so I think there are more than bodily relationship to the land that also are framed, unfortunately, by what kind of uh, sort of legal framework or uncertainty of whether you feel you have the absolute right not to be kicked out of where you're stamping your feet on? Evelyn?
2: Well, I'm, I'm fiercely attached to land that I have only recently begun to live on, which is in the Kootenai Mountains in British Columbia, Canada. So thinking about why that attachment is so strong, I think that in part it has to do with fantasy and with affect. And um, maybe my my first and kind of most nostalgic and imbued with dreamy fantasy attachment is um, my childhood home in Spain, where my family had a farm and there was like this kind of whole image of bucolic, um, and maybe kind of um, degraded um, splendor or something that was that was so appealing to me as a as a child and um, became more and more problematic as I got older, um, having to do with like all kinds of gothic things of family betrayal, but also you know just more questioning about um, fascism and um, and money and inherited wealth um, and all of these things that came with this kind of European idyll. So in my rejection of that, I think that there was this gap left in me for a certain kind of landscape and a feel of air on my skin and feel of of soil underneath my feet. And somehow this kind of dry temperate rainforest, in a contradiction of terms, um, that is the Slocan Valley where, where my family is now farming, um, really resonates for me in, in that way. Um, so the, the area is unceded territory of, um, the Senext people who have been deemed extinct by the Canadian government and who, um, are fighting to regain, um, their rights and that's such a complicated question, but the thing that's so interesting about um, the elder Marilyn James, who has been fighting this fight um, most strongly for so many years, is how involved in the community she is and how much um, we settlers get to converse with her about our position there. And you know, her her main take with us will be, um, sure you you know, like, we're not going to complain if you give back the land, but if you don't, you just really need to love this land. And so just thinking about that in relation to, um, to the kinds of like hard work that it is to um, try to make a land that has been so ravaged by, you know, decades and, and kind of seasonal, moments of forest fires, and heavy logging, um, and clear cutting, um, and pesticide and herbicide use to try to turn this place into um, something that is not natural by any means, but that is um, more integrated with the species that live around it, and that will attract them and um, make this be a place that more living creatures want to be, Um, because it, it does have a a bit of a dead feeling um, and we're working hard to, to bring more life into this space. And I guess the last thing I would say is that I'm doing this project um, with my whole family but mainly with my son. So there's all kinds of um, questions there about like creating something together that moves towards a future but that stays away from certain concepts of property and inheritance while of course replicating them in unavoidable ways as well.
0: I think, I mean, uh, can I just say briefly that I see like all these echoes between um, what Penelope, you're saying, Evelyn, Emily, like in terms of like a place's understanding of itself. You talk about how Saskatchewan has this understanding of itself. You're, I feel like you're kind of talking about the people there, but then we can also say because we're human beings and we change the landscape that like we change the land sort of understanding of itself, but it has its own understanding of itself, right? Like, Penelope, you're talking about like how you're now in a very manicured, managed space. You can call that care. But I sense in what you're saying that it doesn't always feel like care. It sometimes feels like control.
2: But now I want to jump in and say, um, when I was listening to you and I was thinking, you know in the hurricane and thinking Mm -hmm. about like being in bc with a heat dome and and the um, wildfire smoke and even here in banff there's been wildfire smoke um to think that the land probably is having trouble understanding itself now right in response to these
0: changes yeah it changes things when you're attached to an imperiled place i think that's the thing for me it's like it's 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 not as easy to just simpl- simplistically love the sublime beauty of a place when you see it threatened in that way.
1: There's also, I think, a way in which Evelyn, you talked about this, you know, uh, romantic notion of love of the land, but I think something that I found a lot in my own work is that there's also a real love of particular land uses that. Mm-hmm some environmentalists would consider, you know, very destructive. And so um, I did mention the impact of the oil industry on the native prairie, but the biggest impact um, on um, native prairie is has been from farming and the clearing of the land um, associated with settlement, um, which includes the clearing of indigenous people from that land as well. Um, but people are really attached in a lot of rural areas, oil producing areas to that industry in really interesting ways and they do understand that industry as like a very land-based industry they like their jobs because they get to work outside Mm. Um, and so i see some of all of this like it's not always a pretty romantic picture Mm. (laughs) um, in terms of attachments to land and i think those are some of the things we need to change um, if we are going to have a any kind of transition energy transition for example
3: yeah but that's that's where i would sort of say on this sort of romanticizing of the land because of course talking about attachment to the land when you've grown up in a city um where uh, you know your, your access to nature quote unquote is going to a park or is having some natural parks and and not really um sort of having a, a relationship with, with the land that if you would to live in a small town or if you live in an agricultural uh, community, then sometimes that attachment I find can be more of the intellectual um, nature than sort of something to do with, with identity or how you connect your day-to-day um, life, because it can become you know, sort of a nice feature to look at, but then there are many instances where uh, certain aspects of nature are seen as a nuisance. Um, You know, like that's what what I hear here, people wanting to go to the countryside and then being shocked when they find there are insects in the countryside. Um, Mm -hmm. That is sort of this sort of pastoral uh, view of what nature should be, uh, and that nature should be devoid of discomfort, whereas um, when you talk about sort of you know, nature or um, in sort of in Venezuela, it's, it is it is that is that it's constantly trying to regain its territory. Uh, like weed and plants and trees will grow out of the most unlikely places, uh, like within the cracks of a concrete bridge on the motorway um, where, um, you know, insects are all over and everything's pretty much trying to eat you. Um, you know, just like Scott was talking about, like, you know, the hurricane season. We do have hurricane seasons in in Venezuela, but I also recall that we had scorpion seasons uh, where, you know, my mom was insisting on shaking our shoes in the morning to make sure we're not putting our feet and might be a scorpion was sitting there. Um, so, and it's within the, in the middle of urban center. So I think in terms of coexisting uh, with all of the species and how we lay attachment to the land, sometimes the view uh, sort of the narratives are too like picturesque or pastoral and not really uh dealing to there are other things that you have to accept if you want to you know care and embrace the land that there are um other aspects that in terms of um the comforts of human your life you're not going to be expecting to have those if you want to you know uh i don't know like if is doing, sort of working on a farm and dealing with the coexisting holder realities that are so much more uh, controlled when you are closer to urban centers.
4: So that's really fascinating. I, I love the idea of a scorpion season. <laughs> it's really fascinating. It's, it's interesting that, that in, in the conversation, uh, the question of attachment feels as though it's uh, sometimes stubborn. Uh, it's, sometimes, it's sometimes precarious as a relationship to land, it's sometimes uh, unknowing, and it's sometimes very, very knowing or very self-aware as a condition. And I wonder if, I mean, so, so, so Scott, right at the beginning you mentioned vulnerability, and I sort of feel that that thread of vulnerability is running through. Everything that people are saying about sort of a relationship to land, and mm-hmm. and and not necessarily then in re- it, with respect to the question of of overly pastoral versions of land that that a sort of vulnerable relationship to the the challenges of the land is not necessarily a a thing to turn away from, mm-hmm. but rather perhaps something to work with and to 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 engage in some way. I don't know. Does that does that resonate for anyone?
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I th- because you you know uh, invoked uh, what I was talking about in terms of just vulnerability to these um, increasingly fre- frequent climate events. Um, I guess I'll jump in and say that you know we were we weren't as vulnerable as other parts of the Maritimes. You know, Newfoundland and Cape Breton were hit particularly hard. There are people who are still without power a month later. We were pa- without power for. Three days, um, and that vulnerability is is minor, right? I mean, Penelope, I know that you know you're you're acutely aware of the kind of banality of infrastructural collapse—the power going out, the water going out. Um, so you know, maybe you want to speak to that sort of feeling of vulnerability.
3: Yeah, we got one of the one of the things that it's um, that I'm um, at odds. Uh, when I'm here in England is that uh, whenever there is any project that has to do with infrastructure, like when the new route master uh, designed by headway came out, uh, you know, like double, the new double-decker bus that was sold in had air conditioning, my default thinking is what happens when it breaks down? How they plan when things uh, malfunction? Um, mm-hmm. Because that is the day-to-day thing, that things will malfunction because they will not be maintained, they won't be sort of not, um, Prepare with uh, with care and uh, just having regular blackouts uh, running out of water having an extra tank uh, needing to um, sort of plan ahead for when uh, infrastructure collapses it is yeah it is quite mundane it is quite banal actually the the exception is when everything is working perfectly because then you start getting anxious something has to be really wrong because everything else is going um, you know, everything is working. So something is about to uh, to fail. And I guess in terms of relationship to to the land, there's also, um, a, a, well, I have to talk about Caracas because the one that, that I know the best, where I think generally in Latin America, where uh, most of the major cities are in earthquake prone um, areas, uh, there is an awareness that there is a force that is going to unsettle you at at any time. But there's also this sense, of uh, maybe this will relate to the notion of care, uh, but I'm, I want to bring the notion of maintenance. Um, that there is the idea of, of investing something in infrastructure, but not really uh, factoring in the maintaining that is required for those infrastructures, whether they are physical or social, uh, to remain functioning. And also this lack of because a short-term thinking of not planning where the major event will happen that will be the one that will make things um, um, sort of crumble or, or fall apart. Um, so like, you know, like uh, urbanizing um, a city that is built in a valley and not really planning on to how you make water travel upwards. Um, so simple, simple in sort of in principle things that's, um, that means that sort of, Planning ahead and investing and this might sort of steer into talking about corruption and lack of sort of sort of care, which I think might be a too big of a topic to sort of to address right now, but that is a factor a factor in that. So, and also having large ways of population that you know that live in the slums or favelas that don't have in 21st century don't have running water, don't have electricity. Um, it's also Part of it is that it's so commonplace that it's, um, yeah, that it becomes banal. They become, oh, yeah, but well, that's the way it is and it's too difficult to solve. But it's, you um, sort of um, invisibilize all kinds of initiatives that I know come from architects trying to improve that, that situation. But they you know, the overarching um, landscape of, um, of managing. Um, infrastructure. How to ensure that you have, a, you know, steady stream of running water, electricity, etc. Um, is something that um, not it doesn't happen um, everywhere else. So it's a little difficult to understand um, how you sort of ingrain into your everyday life when you have not. Uh, experience it as someone that you know that you know that you turn the flick and of course light comes on and you turn the tap water of course water is going to come in yeah so there are different uh relationships so I think also when we talk about transitions there are all kinds of resourcefulness and being used to not having a reliable sort of infrastructure and health infrastructure and care that it's uh, existing on the parts of the world that I think we're talking about early about dwelling with Discomfort, like it's a discomfort that I don't have right now, but I don't see it as a tragedy if I have to negotiate it. I, I embrace the strength that it gave me, but I don't wish it to anybody else. So that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um,
2: Yeah. I I wanted to jump in thinking about maintenance and also your question, um, which had stubbornness and vulnerability, um, because I was thinking about the. the altercations that have happened in, in the Slocan Valley um, between kind of the old timers who, many of whom are loggers, whose families have been there since the beginning of the 20th century, um, or you know who, who have been involved in some form of logging. And then I guess, particularly in the 70s, um, it's a big kind of hippie uh, community or dissenter community. Um, and I guess there were fights in the bars every week, um, between the old timers and the, um, what they called the tree huggers, um, you know, or the people (laughs) who are like totally against all logging. So when I was talking about this forest feeling dead, it's because a large part of it is, and and many of the trees are, are ailing, um, because this is not a natural ecosystem, because it's uh, an area that has all been logged. the forest that has come in needs to be maintained. It's not a forest that can be left to nature. Um, And so that's like the really interesting thing about like all of a sudden being stewards of a land that needs to be selectively logged. I mean, it's the last thing I ever thought I would hear myself say. I I thought I was a tree hugger myself. Um, And to think about like kind of bringing new life and vibrancy to a system that is a human managed or you know, human degraded um, system that that needs that kind of input. So yeah, like there's just something about like the stubbornness of a certain sense of what this land should be, and, and an attachment to it, to to fulfill that 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 attachment, that fantasy, um, and then also our vulnerability to it and its vulnerability to us um in this relationship of of maintenance or of care of like you don't do this that tree's gonna fall on you or Mm
0: -hmm. you know
2: um whatever like this kind of reciprocity that needs to be happening i think
0: yeah that comes from this kind of like anticipatory care um that is yeah like this is something that i've been thinking about in relationship to halifax which has a serious issue with um the city not maintaining the sort of like uh traffic uh infrastructure which which is to say like there are areas that are known to be um like there's one area for example on roby street that the the local residents dubbed the launching pad because people would fly off the highway <laughs> with no stop sign there and or, or would blow through the stop sign and literally like cars were crashing into houses right like pedestrians were getting hit some killed and it took a community effort a community-led effort to the guerrilla tactics of like taking compost bins and putting them in the street creating medians documenting it on social media documenting the accidents on social media it took all of like years of effort for the citizens of halifax to say hey counselors like people are dying right and eventually after the city got data they needed the data They didn't take people's stories seriously. They finally put in speed bumps and and a crosswalk and and a four way stop. Um, But I think a lot about that because it's like the pedestrians that get hit are typically in poor areas where there are not traffic calming measures and the city is unconcerned. Right. So that kind of what academics might call a kind of necropolitical thing is happening every day in Halifax around people's just attitudes toward driving, you know, cyclists get swiped all the time, you know, it becomes banal. Uh, but it requires this level of maintenance management, but it, it like interestingly is coming from below in the city
3: It's also this sense that when you look at it and sort of a nature there's this sort of um like colloquial thing that there's that say there's nothing there when there are only trees and lakes and animals and there's nothing urban uh it's like there's nothing there but no that's that 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 is not empty, but anything only valuable if suddenly they say that there is Um, oil on the subsoil or that the mountains contain certain minerals. Um, So, you know, from the point of view sort of petrostate, of course, you know, the fact that the subsoil, uh, you know, has oil, that's what made, you know, sort of the landscape of Venezuela sort of viable and the fact that in the the Amazon there is now uh, like, well, a Canaria conglomerate is extracting um, gold and destroying the landscape. Yeah, I wanted to sort of have a sense of this, um, whether you have also this um, sort of um, sense of, uh, when looking at like, sort of like a natural landscape, these sort of urban said that, that saying that, oh, there's nothing to do there. There's nothing there. Or it only becomes valuable when it can be narrated in terms of return of investment on that, be it forestry, be it mining, and whether we need to engage with that discourse if we want to um, sort of engage at different forms of care and maintaining of land that we would like to see preserved. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: That's what you were talking about in a lot of ways, right? That kind of industrial relationship to land that is still- kept, yeah. Right? yeah.
1: Yeah, I kind of wanted to talk a, a little bit too to stubbornness and vulnerability because you know, in many ways, the oil industry is incredibly stubborn and not nearly vulnerable enough. <laughs> yes, not <And> nearly. <laughs> when we, when we think about, like I think a lot about, you know, how to transform what we have into something post carbon and, and just in many ways and. I think there are a lot of moments, like people have been talking recently around the pandemic too, that these crises open up potentially these moments of vulnerability where something new can be brought into being. But we also see just like the incredible ways in which, you know, whether it is um, a certain form of industrial agriculture or um, the oil industry manages to be incredibly stubborn through these periods of vulnerability. Um, And in many ways, I think of it a little bit like... um, you know, a contest of stubbornness. And one of the things that I did want to talk to you as well is just about um, the treaties in in Treaty 4 territory in particular, where I live, which are the agreements that allow for settler existence in those lands and were signed in, in, in this case in Treaty 4 in 1874. Um, and the sort of steadfastness and stubbornness of um, the descendants of the original signers of those agreements on indigenous from indigenous nations about what those agreements mean and really um you know bringing forward that interpretation and being really stubborn and uncompromising on that over time um and so i think you know a little bit about how the transition is really about who can be most stubborn who can make their ideas most durable um and then you know how we can make the things that we don't want to be around vulnerable, and how we can exploit, um, again, sort of crises in which um, a particular industry or a particular constellation of power might be incredibly vulnerable. Mm-hmm.
4: So, and and in relation to that, I think durability is really interesting with respect to these questions of maintenance and care, mm-hmm. and the way in which. Uh, maintenance is part of the problem and in some ways what we're also talking about is the lack of foresight or no interest in foresight. (laughs) We don't need to anticipate problems Mm -hmm. Um, but so the other part of it I think is a question about resilience which is really interesting too so so durability and also resilience Mm -hmm. in that stubbornness and I guess I'm, I'm sort of thinking back to something that Scott has introduced but that I sort of wanted to follow up on what you're saying, Emily, around um, sort of moving beyond sort of entrenched attachments to oil, entrenched petrocultural value. Scott has introduced the idea of community action. Is that a mechanism that would work to do the kinds of things that you're calling for? Are there other things that you think of that are effective mechanisms?
1: Mm-hmm. I think, I think. of course, we're trying to bring something new and different into being, but that. We ought to also, again, remember like this long um, history of movements and, um, yeah, movements on the ground who've been working exactly to, to make themselves durable over time. And I would say like there's a counter movement too. We could say that the, you know, that the oil industry has also been really investing a lot of money and time into making itself durable through both like, what it does on the ground, but also through fostering like these engaged publics, right? That will carry their message and that will champion um, that industry and that um, way of being in the world. And so I think one thing, again, just to go back to sort of the treaties that I was talking about is, um, you know, these treaties are legal in a sense. Um, They are the foundation upon which settlers derive their Um, legitimacy in these lands. And so uh, if we go back to, again, those original interpretations of the treaties, um, there is a way in which resurrecting that, even though it's part of the past, (laughs) also potentially, you know, is a a pathway um, to a different future. And and part of the reason that I'm interested in like some of the um, inherent rights that were affirmed during treaty making is because they are also about relating to the land differently. So um, not having, um, for example, private property, allowing for multiple uses in, in shared space, um, having enough habitat um, that can support a diversity of species that guarantees the rights to harvest. Um, so all of these have like tremendous environmental implications, I think, as well.
3: I guess in, in talking about uh transitions in oil producing countries where the oil industry is the national industry and um where also national identity is tied to oil and where most of the essential infrastructure that the country has, and it happens in other countries, has come because of the oil rent. I think it also um for me has to do for example in, in Venezuela Fernando Coronel defined the Petrostate state as the magical states there is something that you know by um you know like the that the states sort of governs not by sort of by a, a power of sort of performing uh, magical acts of great infrastructure rather than by the power of reason um, so that there is this sense that you have an elite uh, that is sort of the owner of the of oil that is conflicted with a magical seed um, where we had Arturo L. hart came up in 1936 with a slogan that has been enduring called um, we need to sow the oil. Um, so that to invest in the, you know, the money that was coming uh, from oil that was seen as an ephemeral wealth into agriculture and in the form of the economy. But of course, as we know, oil you know, ended up taking over the whole uh, economy, economy, which then with the Bolivarian Revolution, there was this sense that now they were harvesting um, the fruits um, of oil. But I'm, I'm I'm bringing this because there are all kinds of different tropes and, and stories that are also so tied into national identity that are much more challenging to entangle. And to my mind is this notion of uh, whether the transition goes if you don't unpack this sense of an extractivist uh, mindset. Um, that, you know, in finding ways out of oil, the Venezuelan state went from the oil industry into mining. Um, and how are you, how are you able to imagine yourself at anything other than an oil state when also, if you ask sort of if I sort of ask anyone that there are all kinds of benefits that have been and Gain by being an old state, so having universities, libraries, museums, highways, schools, um, airports, and uh, healthcare, all has come because it's funded by the state, and be able to have free schools because it's funded by the state to have to be able to go to university without paying tuition. Uh, because it's funded by the state. Of course, all of those things collapse with the collapse in oil prices, and the hope of a better future somehow still seems to be tied with reviving the old industry and not really going towards renewables. Because I think the transition towards renewables, or like solar or wind, also entail different ways of understanding how we build political relationships. Uh, because oil also forms how we relate with. Politics and how um, you know the state has access to the wealth of the land without representation coming through, um, needing you know coming through by consensus. Um, so yeah, it is quite a complex thing. Thinking about sort of how do you transition when you have countries like Venezuela and others in the world where they're. But they became a nation at the same time that where they became an old country. So it's all quite entailed and political power is also tied to the land because of the resources. So I think there are all kinds of other sort of aspects in how we move towards transitioning towards renewables that have a lot of complexities that I think sometimes are close over in jumping ahead on what the world post oil would look like. Mm. Uh, we're going it need to grapple in how messy the transition is actually going to be.
0: Right. I mean, yeah, food. We haven't even talked. I mean, we've talked about food, the pleasure of being in a new place and enjoying the food there. But I know that, Evelyn, you think a ton about like the sort of durability of industrial agriculture, but also the vulnerability of industrial ag- agriculture. That's something I hear often references like one of the hardest to decarbonize things. Mm, yeah. It's like how how would you even consider Maintaining the scale of the contemporary food system without oil—it's like this. Yeah, you know, I
2: told I told my my graduate seminar this term that if we walked away from the end of the semester being able to answer that aggravating question, who feeds the world, um, if it's not you know industrial ag, then then we would have learned something over the semester. Um, but I was I was thinking about how um, you know I'm I'm an urban dweller for I've been an urban dweller for much of my life. So I, I I see that the difficulties of the rural in terms of um, its its total kind of imbrication in petroculture and extractive culture. Um, the well, I mean, first of all, you can't get anywhere without driving in a car. Um, but then the whole kind of like homesteader ethos, like the sense that you can provide for yourself and your family by growing your own food. Um, this is like such a kind of anti-collective sentiment, you know, it's such an individualistic kind of prepper almost mentality um, that, that still persists, you know, so, so like to think that maybe, um, you know, rural spaces where people are doing kinds of different experiments in permaculture, etc., not necessarily the answer you know it's filled with contradictions there as well and and, you know trying to create community in places where people have gone precisely to get away from the man from the system from you know any, any kind of interference so that they can do whatever the hell they want um which might be you know homeschool their children and grow vegetables and whatever but also just like to to i think thinking towards the future, I think that these communities are really beginning to think about resilience and futurity in the face of climate catastrophe, you know, in a way that's much more pressing out west than maybe people in southern Ontario who are having less climatic catastrophes. But, you know, that people are starting to have to think about what I do on my land is going to directly affect everyone else in the valley, and of course, all the wildlife who needs a larger corridor than you know a certain acreage. So I do think that that it's happening. I do think like events like you know the smoke or the heat dome, where people had to gather in community centers to breathe cool, clean air, um, does does awaken a different kind of consciousness. But it's pretty entrenched the individualism and, and the sense of like survival, individual survival.
4: Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, in relation to this thread of the conversation, which I see, if I were to trace the arc, I would go back to something you said, Penelope, about sort of the magic, <laughs> the way that, that, that petroculture is magic, and it, that has me sort of wondering if the, the, the greatest trick of extractive culture is to successfully seed the narrative of petroleum as magic. Yeah. And then sort of thinking about how the, the spell of that magic may be starting to dissolve in the face of increasing climate catastrophes. And then wondering how sort of practices of care, but also ways of articulating care, so stories of care, provide some basis for imagining community and community connection otherwise. I don't know if that's something that uh, sort of you think about it when you think about the very sort of practice-based approaches you sort of advocate for these problems
0: well i think like i'll say quickly that like as a communicator as a teacher one of the things that um i use as sort of a case study in that that question of like you know magic right the magic nature of petrochemicals is plastics because like plastics it's we're on the verge of considering banning them but it's too little too late i mean it's not just that we recycle nine percent of our plastics it's that we've only ever recycled nine percent of our plastics so it's just accumulated forever, forever, and it's only now being exposed how crucial the sort of spell of PR around plastics was. Stamping the, recycling, the recyclable logo on your container made consumers comfortable with this magic product that let, let them carry their salad to work or whatever, right? And then throw it away, assuming that thing is going to be re- recycled when it never was. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think like that is a thing that does prompt a certain kind of awakening in students. But it is awake- an awakening to the kind of rage that comes from having the wool being pulled over your eyes. And I don't know what that feels like necessarily, but I hope I hope it feels empowering.
4: Yeah, but and what's interesting about the plastic example feels to me that it's very similar to the the big agricultural example, and both of them reverberate with Penelope, your idea about the the tremendous challenge of transition and the messiness of transition, because plastic is a problem, but plastic is uh, inevitable in our world. How, what would our world be without the plastics that come from petrochemicals?
2: Right. I, I don't know, Emily, if you could speak to that in terms of what it's, I mean, the big ag in Saskatchewan and like just kind of imagining does that go away? Does that, is that able to be shifted? Um,
1: Yeah, I think it's, they're one of the, they're the same question really about, I think like the magic of petroleum and industrial agriculture, because in many ways, I think industrial agriculture is turning fossil fuels into food. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And so it's, there there's these claims right and whether it's even um in some ways penelope when you were talking about how well we have museums and we have schools and we have all of this because of fossil fuels on the other hand you know that is the rhetoric of the industry itself like you couldn't have a nice life or nice things without us we provide this and you want it and i think um, you know it's this the same question for agriculture that people have is like can can we feed the world otherwise and what would that look like and there are powerful forces that want us to think that it's impossible to do it otherwise right
3: it's also to do with the cycles of boom and bust uh, in old prices mm-hmm. uh, where when there is a hike in old whether because there is a war somewhere or because the OPEC decided to lower production or whatever tactics there are, Um, then it feels like magic because sometimes you won the lottery. That Suddenly there is this big massive influx of money that comes into the country. And for example, in 1970s, with the the government of Carlos Andres Perez, he came up with this national project called the Great Venezuela, where that's when the oil industry was nationalized And the state-owned oil company was created, PDVSA, But he also was saying that within a few years we'll become a first-world country because we have all these windfall coming. Um, But then there wasn't the foresight that that you know nothing stays you know up all the time. Then the oil prices collapse and everything else sort of started deteriorating. Uh, But then that creates this sort of magical thinking that all we need to do just to wait for the next boom and we'll sort of sort of reclaim uh, our place. And also I think create sort of cycles of um, of wastefulness of not needing to maintain things because once you get the old windfall you'll be able to just to buy new things or buy or not maintain uh, infrastructure. So it, it also dist- uh, disrupts all kinds of relationships that before that would have been a bit more uh cautious uh so to speak so that the the magic is not uh not just with you know sort of plastics and how i mean was saying with with agriculture but also how um detached day-to-day action is to whether the economy is doing well or not and how politicians jump on that or not, also to fit that magical, that magical thinking. That I think that magical thinking is the one that I think is the most challenging to unpick because there's also a lot of political power and economic power that are ingrained um, with it.
0: And now we're at a point where the oil industry here in, I mean, in Alberta. Is you know suggesting that um, decarbonized oil is possible. That the higher the price of oil, uh, the more you know sophisticated the technology can become to extract it. You know, no matter the cost, we'll just use these magical technologies to rip it out of the ground, or an offshore drilling, or whatever it takes. Um, so I think like the sort of the magic nature of technology, carbon capture and storage being this sort of magical way that we can you know persist with business as usual itself is is a, a troubling thing.
2: but uh, but i I believe that um, we can't discount magic as a powerful force. So I mean, we can rebut the magic of technology as a solution. but um, but yeah. I think that some kind of discourse of magic is not something to be, kicked out if we're thinking about some form of transition I mean whether it's the magic of you know growing delicious mm-hmm. food or um, of, of living in, in harmony with different groups of people doing different things on land or, or, or whatever um, I think that I think that to to reject a discourse of magic because we're too expert or too scientific or we know the data or something isn't gonna really get us anywhere in in bringing people together in communities of care.
0: I I really appreciate that you preserve the idea of magic being a thing that exists socially, culturally, um, that happens between people, that is almost ineffable. Um, You know, I've been uh, reading and ruminating on Marcus Boone's book, The Politics of Vibration, Music as Cosmopolitical Practice. And that book is beautiful in terms of its openness to music's spiritual qualities. It is also very concerned with um, music's mathematical qualities. So There's like a whole almost inscrutable chapter of music as math. And I, you know, I kind of flipped through there. But the parts where he's talking about like entering into almost trance-like states, when listening to music or being in spaces where music is being performed and feeling that space transformed, um i'm very attached to that idea of magic because i felt it I'm, I'm tingling thinking about it right that's what music to me does um like you know so in halifax for a long time they had something called the obey convention it's now called thankfully every seeker um and i attended a concert by a, a band called Noveller and Noveller it's just this kind of uh it's it's noisy and it's it's highly sort of textured guitars and it's using reverb but it was in a church and i went to sleep right and you might feel like listening to music in a live space rude at having gone to sleep but it's not like a lecture right that's a legitimate state of being you know when people do yoga they sometimes go to sleep because suddenly something's happening to your body like your body is changing and to me that is magic genuinely you know I've I've been in spaces like I've, I still remember these spaces where they were like transformed by the passion the performance how laden it was with not just the emotion of the performer because sometimes I can feel cloying and too much um, but the collective emotion of people just into it you know that to me is
4: This in a way for me is a question about uh, mood as a collective experience and the heavy mood of the present and the potential of moods to change such that uh, something different could emerge, different community, different possibilities, different attachments.